This is a really weird episode for me to comment on personally. I don't have much to say, of course. But, well... This episode, in my opinion, does a better job than The Child did. Now, as I think I commented back in The Child, I didn't hate that episode nearly as much as I thought I would because there were specific elements of it that helped uplift it. But this episode was in the same general boat. In fact, they've been trying to get this episode to work for TNG since Season 2 and failing over and over and over again. This was an episode that was another one of the salvaged scripts from the Phase 2 event, just like The Child was. Now, as a consequence, the number of people who have had hands on the script is huge. In fact, I have a full list here. This includes Michael Piller, Melinda Snodgrass, Lezebnik, Michael Douglas Lansford, Lee Sheldon, Larry Carroll, David Bennett Karen, and I think there's actually more that I don't have in front of me here. Uh, excuse me, it's Philip, Philip uh, Lezebnik, specifically. Uh, yeah, there's a couple others that aren't listed here. They're in the book. But the point being... It's, this is a huge number of writers who've been trying to make this episode work for the better part of two and a half years now. Finally, they push it out and we get this episode. Now, I do think they do an acceptable job of it. I really do. But I can't call this a great episode. Like, this easily wouldn't be in the TNG, uh, you know, the VHS favorites, as I've mentioned before. But I will say, they do... Oh, that's interesting. They do, um, they do a pretty decent job with the overall premise and it raises two very interesting points, which unfortunately are never really addressed again. But they're at least interesting enough to keep me engaged. And, of course, the woman who played Ardra, naturally I don't have her name right here, um, Marta Dubois, is someone who actually does a pretty good job with her role. She's actually been trying to get a, a role on TNG for some time now. This is the first one they finally actually handed to her. She was at least popular enough that she showed up in several fan works, or, excuse me, not fan works, but, like, non-canon works after that. She was in a couple of books. I remember a comic series, which was actually all about her. Anyone remember the TNG comics? I used to collect those. Anyways. So, the episode starts with Data playing uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, disbelieving that his old fr friend Nicholas Flamel, whatever his name is, I know that's not his name, it's a joke, is, is, is in front of him going, Woo! And it's a nice scene, actually. You can kind of tell exactly why it was put there, because it's not just that scene in general, but it is the specific lines of dialogue involving that the senses can be fooled. There's also a really lovely bit where Picard is talking to Data, and Data says he's trying method acting, and Picard, who is played by Patrick Stewart, has to say the lines, Method acting? Why would you use such an old and outdated concept of acting? And I'm pretty sure they did that on purpose, just as a little inside joke. As an aside, if you happen to rewatch this episode or have rewatched this episode, rewatch the scene where they're in the corridor talking. One of the ensigns who goes by, a young woman goes by on the right side of the screen, can't help but try to suppress a grin at how ridiculous Data looks. It's, it's kind of funny, because it kind of works in character as well as out. So then they get to the planet, and the planet's in panic, oh my god, and they're trying to attack us, and, and, and oh god, they're going to take us hostage. And This implies many things to me, which I want to comment on. This is one of the reasons why this episode does fail, because to be completely blunt, the construction of the script is frankly bad. There's just too many holes in the premise, and too many things that don't logically make sense. Now the specifics of certain scenes in the script work, basically on the weight of the character dynamics, and of course in the way Ardra and Picard both present themselves, usually independent, but also playing off of each other as well. 
But there's this thing where we learn that these people have been, the Federation outpost has been observing these people for some time, sufficiently long enough to know that this is, you know, basically all about the fact that Ardrith forms the core essence of their entire mythology, the fact that the current leader has been researching the Ardra prophecies for some time now, it's, it's mentioned to be years, and that this has been a growing sense of panic in the population, and yet in all this time, at no point in time did they think to go ahead and, oh, I don't know, send out a message saying, hey, so things are getting hot down here. Can we have pickup? Anyone? Just just anything. Just send us a shuttle, an Oberth, anything. Come on. Miranda, you don't need to send a galaxy. Okay, there's a galaxy in the area. Hey, you mind getting us out of here? And they wait, <laughs> they wait so long until there's literal rioting in the streets and people actually burst into their, their room and take, and take them hostage to do anything. Side note, do they have nothing to defend themselves with? Remember, these people have no technology. It's actually part of their point that they are a non-industrial society. I'm not even going to begin to comment on the fact that they shouldn't have a lot of the uh, architectural stuff that they have in a non-industrial society. Let's not even get into that. Let's, let's not. So they decide not to defend themselves. And, oh, no, they're taken hostage. Now... I say this is a bad form of construction because the only purpose behind this exists to get the Enterprise there in order to actually become a part of the episode, a player in the event, so to speak. There was no need for a direct threat upon the people. They could have just said, you know, th th in fact, it could have been the Enterprise was specifically being sent here in reaction to their call for help and pickup after they mentioned it because things were getting hot. The Enterprise is then going here on purpose specifically to retrieve them and then ends up getting embroiled in the events rather than this hostage situation, which is just there to be like, oh my god, it's a threat, and then it's, it's resolved just like that. Or just, just like, yeah, let him go. The end. See kind of what, you kind of see what I mean about that? So anywho... So she's the corner of all their mythos, and this is one of the really interesting things about the episode to me. Now, as is discussed later, um, <laughs> Picard goes down the list of all the things, you know, they came up with... Uh, so she, she didn't snap her fingers to make everything perfect. A new system of governments came together. They formed a council. This council made a new constitution. The people ratified the constitution. They took years of effort to reclaim the pollution. They shifted over from an industrial-based economy to an agrarian-based economy in order to deal with the, the damage they were doing to the planet. You know, all this fun stuff. And... Okay, I'm, I'm stuttering over this because what I want to say is that this is all a placebo effect. Now, that's the way the episode presents it. And remember, construction of episode, not great because of so many writers being involved. This is definitely a too many uh, chefs in the kitchen kind of a situation. But I find myself wondering how much of this was these people deciding to just man up, for lack of a better way to put it, and decide to fix their people. Or how much of this was a genuine fear about the Ardra situation and a legitimate belief that they would now have peace. The placebo effect. Ardra has given us peace, therefore we can now work towards peace. And so some people that would otherwise be inclined towards violence or self-destructive behavior or greed or whatever weren't. This is also kind of supported by the fact that after a millennia of peaceful coexistence with themselves and acknowledgement and understanding of extragalactic powers, excuse me, intergalactic powers, and yet at the same time basically be hands off. Remember, as they mentioned in the episode, these people have had contact with other species semi-regularly. They just don't want to trade for anything. They're cool, we're cool, just leave us alone. 
And yet, these people who have basically come into what is referred to as an idyllic society descend into barbarism and violence out of fear of the fact that Arge is back and therefore the peace has ended. You can see why I bring up the placebo idea here. The idea that they have to be good because now we're in peace, but they don't have to be good anymore. It would be very interesting to see how much of this society endures intact after these events. I mean, yes, this specific woman, Ardra, quote-unquote, was obviously a fraud, but, well, that just means that these people are now being told that the core element of their entire belief system was always wrong. You're going to tell me that's not going to have an impact on their society? I just find the whole concept fascinating, though. I really do. It's the idea... Well, for lack of a better way to put it, it's kind of the gun-to-the-head mentality. Hear me out. If you have a gun to your head, well, you tend to be more inclined to do whatever that person's telling you to do, because you have a gun to your head. But at the same time, if there's an implication of a gun to the head, well, then you're still going to be inclined to do something, because, well, I mean, if I don't do this, then it's not going to work, right? In this case, though, this is kind of the inverse of that, because there's no actual gun. There's no threat. It's just... Uh, it's, it's actually quite, quite the opposite. That's why I say the inverse. It's more like, I'll remove the gun from your head, and now you can do whatever you choose to over the next millennia. And the people are like, oh, okay. And I, I just get this really strong impression. I'm, I'm failing miserably at explaining this. Please forgive me. I get the really strong impression that a lot of the people on the planet basically reached the point where they were like, okay, well, we don't have to be horrible anymore. We've made the deal with Ardra, who or whatever Ardra, whatever was. So we don't have to be horrible anymore. There's no one forcing us to do this. We can fix this now, because we've made this great deal. Oh, yeah, you're right. We could fix this now. And like it, it, like it never occurred to them before, right? Of course, this is all presuming that there was an Ardra that made this deal with them. Of course, it was probably not a real deal. It could also be argued that the Ardra never existed, that it was always exactly what I said earlier, a myth rather than an actual being. Although I wouldn't be surprised if it was an actual being because this is Star Trek. One moment, please. So then... They go to try and find where their people are being held hostage. They treat it like it's a threat, which is laughable. These people have no technology to speak of. No high technology, no science fiction level technology. Scan the planet for humanoids. Or excuse me, humans, to be more specific. Scan the planet for humans. Remember, these are not humans. These are Vintaxons. Okay, okay. There, there's the humans. Beam them up. Done. What in the world? Uh, anyways, I'm sorry, one more moment, please. That's actually one of the things that irritates me about the episode. It, it would make a little bit more sense if this was done back in the TOS era, where they couldn't actually scan that precisely. But then again, as I think I've made clear, I, uh, I, I'm not willing to give this episode a break. <laughs> as much as I enjoy certain parts of it. So... There's this bit where she finally shows up, and she's like, Hi, I'm the devil. He's like, yeah, I've, I've encountered more credible people to be the devil. I always find that funny, the way he says that. Some people have automatically assumed he's referring to Q. Uh, some people think he's referring to the Borg. Some people think he's referring to any of the other number of beings he's encountered thus far, or read about, for that matter. Uh, remember, we've had some interesting encounters in the TOS era, which I know we all like to pretend don't exist, but, uh, you know... Parentheses, asterisk, parentheses is just one of the ones that comes to my mind immediately. So, I want to mention something here. When I was watching this as a kid, not for a second did I actually think she was a being of power. 
I think that's, having rewatched this episode, I think that's partially because Picard himself never buys it for a second. And therefore, as a kid, I was more inclined to go with Picard's and his interpretation of it. But from a detached perspective now, ruminating on it, I find that interesting that I just automatically assumed this was a con. Because this is Star Trek. A being with the power to do the stuff she does is actually kind of tame compared to some of the stuff we see within this franchise. I'm just curious what you guys thought when you first thought saw this. Did you think it was some kind of powerful being, or did you think it was just a con all the way through, or some other opportunity? As ever, I like look forward to hearing your thoughts. In addition to you guys telling me that I shouldn't sneeze on camera. <clears throat> so, what I I have a note here. Notice that Ardra lets the hostages go immediately. Now, my first thought was, well, that's smart, because remember, Ardra's a con artist who is here to claim a planet. You know, it's, it's the con of a lifetime. I've heard some people wonder why she went to such effort for this, and I find that to be a strange question to ask. As I've talked about many times, specifically with regards to the Romulans, the only thing that determines how much you're willing to pay is how much, it, how much it's worth it to you, right? And thus, the value of having an entire planet to herself and her crew, well, that's extremely valuable. It would be the con of a lifetime. Of course she'd be willing to go through all this effort. The payoff would be enormous. Would you be willing to work really, really hard for a week to get $12 million, right? I mean, you're basically set for life having done that. So yeah, okay, I'll put the work in. I'll put the time and effort in. Sure, because it's worth it. But the thing is, she lets the hostages go. And I was thinking, well, that's very smart of her. Because what she wants is for the Federation to be as far away from this as possible. After all, if she has a brain, she understands that any kind of external influence, especially from Starfleet, is going to just have the possibility of getting in the way of her claim on this planet. And I want you to remember this, because if she had just basically said, nope, you're out, and then basically stopped antagonizing the Enterprise, there's an extremely good chance she would have actually gotten away with this. Instead, she does antagonize the Enterprise. And that brings me to something I want to mention. It's called narrative cheating. There are three times in this episode where they pull a narrative cheat, technically four times. And each of these times, when I say a narrative cheat, what I mean is something happens that doesn't actually make logical sense knowing everything that's supposed to be going on. And it's being done in a way to convince us of the validity of something that is a, that is a lie, that is a misdirection or trying to maintain a mystery. That's narrative cheating. I've talked about it before. So, the first time they do a narrative cheat, she's there on the bridge. Nobody notices this, by the way. Even though they have the ability on the TNG, as established at this point in time, to detect when intruders have beamed aboard. And remember, she's just using a transporter. Uh, let's also not forget the fact that she is using, according to Geordi's own words, a cheap copy of a Romulan cloak. And we can detect through some aspects of Romulan cloaks. This actually happened several times. Again, even by this point in the, in the series, we haven't even gotten to the tachyon scan thing from Redemption yet. We can still at least kind of scan through Romulan cloaks under the right circumstances. And her cheap copy is so great that Jordy had to pull a spe special scan just to find it. So they can't detect the ship for whatever reason. And she just manages to beam on board the bridge unnoticed for no, for no seeming reason. And then almost immediately after being beamed off, she manages to beam back in the right uniform in place of the ensign. Where's the ensign when she does this? How did she manage to do that without sound or, or any kind of impact? I mean, transporters are not stealth-equipped, right? Or maybe hers are stealth-equipped. But this is my point. We could probably sit down and make some of the things make sense. You know, she has a stealth transporter. They beam the guy away. They give him a quick hypo to knock him out for a few seconds. And then they give him another one to set him back up and beam him back as soon as she beams away. Like, I, I could see how we could construct this. But the episode makes no effort to try and explain itself. 
it cheats, narratively speaking, to make us think that she really is what she says she is, right? Anywho. <clears throat> There's also a small point I, want, I just want to point out really quick. Two things, actually. First of all, uh, Picard says, raise the shield. Now, that order never goes through. Now, that's actually interesting in its own right, because assuming that this week that you can't beam through the shields, if he had successfully raised the shields, she wouldn't have been able to beam aboard his quarters later or do the stuff with the ensign that she was able to do. In fact, it would actually be interesting to me if he raised the shields and she's now stuck on the Enterprise because she can't beam back out, which is, of course, why they narratively forget that he said raise the shields, even though that was a direct order he gave that, you know, Worf probably should have gone through with over on Tactical, but I digress. Second point, uh, Feklar is in this episode. The, the Klingon devil, I stand over the gates of Grethor. This is actually something that's analyzed a couple more times in the future. I just wanted to mention really quickly how interesting it is that Star Trek Online took this idea and completely ran with it, made it a very long and kind of awesome story arc in the recent uh, Gamma Quadrants. Uh, well, I say recent, it was actually last year. But the, the last year's Gamma Quadrant expansion. It's just really, really cool, because I love Star Trek Online, and I love plugging it, and I love how they take tiny little things from Star Trek and turn it into something that makes sense and is a far more interesting story. Just wanted to point that out really quick. Anywho, so, um, then she decides to get greedy, and she lays claim to the Enterprise D. This is by far her biggest mistake here, because the moment she has done this, she's basically guaranteed that she is screwed. Now, I don't know if she fully realizes this or not, and again, the whole point of the episode, really, is the idea that she is not smart. <laughs> to, to, to put that as absolutely nicely as I can, Int was probably her dump stat. Maybe Wisdom. It's, it's clear that this woman cranked up her charisma and nothing else. Now, that makes sense. She's a con artist. But I, I like to think, and this is, again, just pure headcan, I like to think that she's back on her crew, and she's like, guys, we could have the Enterprise. We could have a Federation starship. We could have all these things. And she has to, like, talk her crew into this because it's such a monumentally, horrifically bad idea. <laughs> like, there's no way in hell she would have ever gotten away with this from any level. It's just not possible. There's simply too many ways this could go wrong, too many ways she could be found out, and too many possibilities of Starfleet finding out what's going on, like I said, and intervening and getting her to lose everything, as she eventually does in this episode. Anyways. Now, that being stated, one of the things I find most amusing is the idea, which is heavily presented in this episode, that the reason she lays claim to the Enterprise is because she wants Picard. I don't know what else to add to that. <laughs> if you picture it as Kirk instead of Picard, it would make about as much sense. I mean, both men, let's be 100% honest here, are, are catches, as I like to say. They're very smart, very attractive, very driven. You know, lots of charisma, lots of intellect. They... What's the dump stat of Picard, right? Strength? So, you can kind of see how her being smitten with him makes perfect sense. But it is still hysterical to me that she's willing to toss something that, as I, decided, as I explained earlier, is incredibly valuable to her just for the sake of getting Picard. I, I, I know that that's what the episode is presenting. I just don't believe it. <laughs> I, I cannot believe someone would be willing to do that. I'm sure I'll get some comments about that, but whatever. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> Which brings us to Narrative Cheat 2. So she beams ab aboard into Picard's personal room without being detected, somehow manages to turn off his comm signal, and disable his door from working. 
She also, while she's there, manages to not alert anyone else whatsoever. In fact, Worf has to be informed by Picard that he's no longer on the ship, even though they should have probably detected her beaming over to begin with, and they definitely should have detected the beam off of Picard. This is the kind of thing that has been a problem before, I'll admit, but they also have the ability to detect, depending on which episodes you prove you decide to be canon. Continuity. Anyways, I just find it a little hard to believe that she's able to pull off all this so effortlessly. It's an amusing scene. Um, in the Blu-ray, we get to see, it's a lot more obvious that she's basically wearing this kind of bodice thing underneath the see-through outfit, so you can kind of get the intent there. I have a feeling that in lore, the intent is that there's no bodice underneath that mesh that she's just supposed to be nude. Because that just strikes me as exactly what she would try to do in these circumstances. Hey, and Picard's just like, whoa, look, <laughs> this is an unauthorized kiss. <laughs> Those are un- Those are- <laughs> I can't even do it, I can't even do it. Anyways, point being... One thing I do find very interesting about that scene is that she decides to take the the appearance and vocal patterns of Troy as the one to try to seduce him. Like, oh, I could be all chaste, or I could be Counselor Troy. Now, I'm not saying Marie DeSertis is not attractive. I'm just saying, how much more leverage do you think she would have gotten if she'd done that as Crusher instead? Now, I understand she probably never seen Crusher and thus didn't have the data necessary in order to replicate her, whereas she had had interactions with Troy. Oh, by the way, really quick aside before I forget about it, why can't Troy detect anything here? She can't detect the other ship, even though we know she has that kind of range on her sensory powers. And she can't detect uh, anything from Ardra. She even has a line thrown into the episode to be like, ah, she's got a very disciplined mind, and that's it. I only point this out because I'm starting, I'm building up a document of evidence that they should have just had Troy lose her powers back in the loss and keep it that way. Just have Troy be Troy, not Troy who also goes. Bzzz. A lot of other scenes would still have the same impact, in my opinion. In fact, I can even think of one in Chain of Command which would have had the exact same impact without Troy needing her powers. In fact, it would probably be more impacting if she didn't have her powers. I'm sure some of you know the one I'm thinking about, but I'm getting off topic. Anyway, so she imitates Troy. And Worf is a terrible security chief. I mean, this is the same guy who's going to lose control of the Enterprise to a couple of Ferengi running some Klingon bird of praise, so what the hell do I know? Uh, so, then the Enterprise vanishes. This is cheat number three. How the hell does, this, does she get away with this? What they posit in the episode is that she has a cheap knockoff of a Romulan uh, cloak and the ability to disable communications. Okay, I'm willing to buy that. So you're telling me that the rest of the Enterprise crew on the Enterprise, one of the best ships in the fleet, at least at this point in history, and with one of the best crews in the fleet, just sit around on their thumbs doing nothing for the next, like, 15 minutes of time while while Geordi reaches to contact them? Give me a freaking break. And yet that's apparently what's exactly what happened. They just sat there until Geordi got a hold of him. Sure. I, I could totally believe that that's exactly what happened. This is completely ignoring the fact that if they had extended the cloak over them, they probably should have seen the ship extending the cloak over them. Whatever, narrative cheat three, like I said. So then we get to the actual uh, legal side of the episode. Now this right here, this is probably one of the biggest reasons why I'm willing to forgive this episode. The legal scene is actually quite amusing and enjoyable. It's not really valid from a legal perspective, although I do find myself wondering how much Miss Snodgrass uh, attributed to the scene, since she herself does have lawyering experience. There, uh, They have tidbits of legality there, of, of accurate legality, at least as far as, you know, 
real life goes. Uh, they mention about how you're not supposed to draw speculation or conclusions, you're not supposed to lead the witnesses, etc., etc. But at the same time, it is established, her identity is established based on the flimsiest of possibilities. Whereas in an actual legal environment, I think she would have had to work far harder to establish that she is, in fact, Ardra. Picard's point is extremely valid. This woman is claiming an identity that she has no definitive proof of. Now, that may or may not be relevant to the case, but I think that's the kind of thing, if I was arbitrating, I would, I would weigh in favor of Picard in this case, because she has not proved her identity. She, she may or may not prove that this has happened, and therefore that she deserves the right of this, but to simply claim that, nah, nah, nah. Anyways. So then there's this really nice pit where she starts showing off her powers for a little bit. Now, twice during this scene they beam someone out or, or vanish them or whatever, once with Picard and then once with Ardra. It does lead to a wonderful line. The, the advocate will refrain from removing her opponent from the field. But um, where does Picard go? Now, my personal headcanon on that doesn't really fit, I'll admit. When I was a kid, I should say. I shouldn't say my personal headcanon. But when I was a kid, I automatically assumed that he wasn't actually beamed away. They just put up, like, a, a temporary cloaking field on that one spot and, and, like, a sensory blocking field and then removed it. And then did the same thing with Ardra, and then were back. Because it's so short-term, they could probably get away with that sort of thing. The longer they would have to maintain such an effect, the harder it would probably be. So that kind of makes sense. You know, smoke and mirrors, right? I don't know what's actually supposed to happen. They keep mentioning it like it's a transporter thing. I really don't know. It could just be a holographic field that accomplishes the same thing as earlier. But this brings me to, my fa to the other point of the, epi point of the episode that I really enjoy thinking about. In Star Trek, they have access to very high advanced technology. Star Trek is one of the highest tech settings that there is. Not unless you have, in order to get higher than Star Trek, you have to go into some of the truly ludicrously advanced settings. And I mention that because it bothers me, and I've talked about this many times before. It bothers me how little they use the tools at their disposal. The transporter alone, I, I speak about the transporter so much, the transporter by itself is an absolute miracle of technology and engineering, and yet they use it to get from point A to point B. I, I can't even begin to talk about how many uses the transporter has other than for transporting. Now, DS9 started to branch out a little bit on that. TNG started to branch out a little bit on that. But in both, in both cases, for the most part, the overwhelming majority of them just show it as the way you get from point A to point B. The way to avoid using shuttlecrafts, right? And I bring that up because that's true for so much of the technology they have. They have insanely advanced tech. So it was actually really satisfying to see someone use the same level of technology that you know, they have access to for this kind of a purpose, for a logical conclusion that isn't just the typical, right? It, it, it is so amazingly sense-making to me. You know, she's like, I have all these proofs of my power. And the whole time, even as a kid, I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's just a transporter beam. Well, it's just a holodeck or a holographic recreation. You know, this is all stuff that the Enterprise could do. And eventually does do. And that's great. I love how they use that. I, how I love how that makes perfect sense. If anything, I wish we had more like this. Not necessarily like as a con artist. Just other episodes where other groups of people use these otherwise mundane texts that we've become very used to as viewers of Star Trek in new and unique ways. Like as, as a, if, if I was in, in the writer's room, I would be challenging my writers to come up with new ideas for this kind of tech. And maybe like have a, 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 a whiteboard or a chalkboard. It's like, here, if you ever have an idea for something new, new way to use one of our technologies on the show, just jot it down here and we'll look at this every now and again and see if we can come up with something. Because I think that would just be really fascinating. Anywho, so then she, she says, can you explain what I'm doing, yes or no? Now, first of all, 
uh, again, legal quibble. She doesn't have the ability to do that, just to say yes or no, because uh, I know this sounds weird, but even in legal circles, things are usually not binary. Um, there's also the concept of provisional. You know, I, I agree to this provisionally, which is actually something Picard himself has used all the way back in Encounter at Farpoint. Instead, however, what I find interesting is her question is, can you, are, can you explain these yes or no? He could have very fairly said yes, if we were going to really legally quibble here. But no, he says no. Which is a shame, because I really think that even without knowing, he could have explained all of this. Uh, specific usage of tractor beams could have caused the quaking. Specific use of the transporter beams, specific use of the holodeck recreation, specific use of voice modulation, etc., etc., etc. I think they could have actually done a good job of it, but instead he's just kind of like, no, I can't explain it. Anywho. So, Picard has this great scene. I already actually mentioned this, where he said, did she snap her fingers and fix the world? Did she uh, appoint the governors? Did she advise the council? Did she destroy the weapons? Did she purify the water and air? Did she do anything at all? And the guy's like, no. Now, what I find most interesting is that Picard's argument here is absolutely fantastic and very convincing because he basically states that there is no evidence whatsoever of the, of, of the possibility that Ardra did anything. This is also fascinating because it is immediately contrasted by Ar Ardra's own argument. Do you have any doubt whatsoever that I helped? And, when you say no, you have no doubt, do you believe that this contract has been satisfied? And that's her only argument, which is a typical con argument, because it's trying to take a complex situation and break it down to the basics, which is much easier to manipulate and control. So, Jordy finally finds it. Bad copy of Romulan Cloak, blah, blah, blah. And then we get to the final scene, which is, again, great. Because Picard goes to the guy and says, you're an intelligent, rational man. Do you trust in your senses? Once again, going back to where the episode started. The guy says, well, yeah, of course. And what I love most is not just the fact that Picard does all the same tricks. He does it like this. I know that's a really minor touch, but something about the fact that Picard chooses this to be the signal for switching between one thing to the other really appeals to me. I like to think that if Q was watching, he'd be like, that's my boy. And, of course, Data even looks amused by the whole display and finally says, all right, you've... You've worn out your welcome. You know, your leeway has run out. And Picard's like, okay, well, let me explain what's going on. And she is just like, okay, I'm going to leave now. And then they leave, blah, 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 the end. This was a weird episode. I still would call this a net positive episode. But it's, I, it feels like, it, I know this sounds so strange, but it feels like it needed more polish. And I know that sounds strange to say because they've been doing nothing but trying to polish this episode for literally years to get it to actually work. I get the strong impression that, and I have no proof of this, but in season four, there are several episodes which it's very clear the core writing team, you know, everyone in the writer's room, basically, which included Moore, um, Braga was there now, Berman was there, Pillar was there, and several other people, I don't know the names off the top of my head, please forgive me, but, you know, the core writing team had, like, you know, 18 or so episodes they really wanted to push forward. And they just weren't sure what to, to do with the other four slots they had, right? Or however many slots are left. And so they were just like, okay, well, we really want to, to push these episodes, so give me something. And that leads to some of the odd episodes we have in season four, like this one. Regardless, I do hope you guys have enjoyed, and I guess I will be seeing you guys next time.